let's take a time to look at God's word and see what God has to say to us. Unfortunately, today we're going to have to talk about something that's very common to people, at least to start. Failure is common to the human experience. Every single person has dealt with failure at some point or another. Even the most successful person you can think of, the most advanced politician, the the best athlete, the richest businessman has experienced failure at some point. It's something all of us are familiar with. We lose a game. We fail at a project. There's some task that we're unable to complete. Or we experience broken relationships. We fail. And so from one point of view, the passage of Scripture I'd like to look at today is all about our failure. Where we are is in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're talking about God's people. They're back in the promised land. They're back, but they're wondering, now what? They've now returned. They've rebuilt their temple. They've rebuilt the walls of their city. And they've returned to focusing on God's word. And when they look at God's word, they're convicted by how they fail against God, how they sin and break God's law. And so our text today is a prayer of them confessing their sin. And we could, I could spend a whole message talking about how we fail. God is so great, but we fall so short. And that would be a true message, and that would be what the passage talks about. We could talk all about our many, many failures before God. But scattered throughout this passage, this prayer of confession we're going to look at today, the text also talks a lot about God. When the Israelites pray, they pray say a lot about who God is and what he is like. And so instead of focusing on our failures, I'm going to spend this morning talking about God and his faithfulness. Because while we fail and are faithless, he remains faithful. And so that gives us the freedom to confess our sins. We can praise God for who he is. We can plead for mercy from him. We can make a covenant, a commitment to live for him because he remains faithful. He shows great mercies to us. Now, if you've been here often, you know that we often stand to read a passage of scripture. This text is a little bit of a longer one. So for sake of time, we'll just read it as we go along. But before we spend some time looking at what God's word says, let's pray. God, thank you that you remain faithful to us. Thank you for your faithfulness that you show us in sending your son to die for us. Thank you for your faithfulness in spreading your good news even on the other side of the world. Now as we consider how we have failed but you remain faithful, I pray that that would lead us to confess our sins, to praise you, God, for who you are. God, may we please call out to you for more of your mercy and commit to live for you. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness to us, especially as it is seen in the person and work of your Son. God, if I truly ask today that you would be the one who would increase, that we would see your glory and how amazing you are. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. So most of our passage is a prayer of God's people, but let's look at the, kind of the background, the situation that's happening. And what's happening here in this chapter is a confession of sin. God's people are confessing their sins. They're saying, God, these are the sins that we have committed. So I'm going to read chapter 9 of Nehemiah. So if you're in Nehemiah 9, I'm going to start with verses 1 through 5. You could follow along in your Bible, or we'll also have the verse up on the screen. So Nehemiah 
chapter 9, starting verse 1. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs were some Levites, and someone was making fun of me because I haven't been reading their names. I'm doing that for the sake of time. Uh, But for the Levites, they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And then those same Levites said, Stand up, bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. The people have heard from God's word, and now they're confessing, God, this is how we have sinned. When they look at who God is, they realize that they come far, far short. Our passage is coming after the celebration they just had. If you were here last week, you remember they were celebrating a festival. It was the Feast of Booths or Tabernacle. It was a worship experience for all of God's people. It was supposed to be a time of celebration, but when they were reading God's word, they started to be convicted from their sin, they started weeping. And their leaders had to say, no, no, this is supposed to be a time of celebration. We will mourn for our sin later. Well, now the celebration is over, and now it's appropriate for them to mourn. And so they mourn their sin through some physical actions. They they fast. They don't eat food during the day. They wear sackcloth, the dress of mourning. They put earth or dust on their head, conveying humility. We are lower than dirt because we sin. These are physical actions. They're preparing their heart. We're going to confess sin to God. They separate from those who do not worship God so that they can focus on Him. And then they read God's Word and they confess their sins. And they also confess the sins of their ancestors, the iniquities of their fathers, those who came before them. They read God's Word for three hours and then they pray. They confess sin for three hours. Here they're echoing what we see elsewhere in the Old Testament. Psalm 106, the people say, both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. We've seen this a couple times in this part of the Bible. And this idea of confessing not just your sins, but the sins of those who came before, that's that's something we're uncomfortable with because we're very individualistic as Americans. But in the Bible, God's people understood that They are where they are in life because of what happened before. Their ancestors' actions, both good or bad, set them on the course of life that they are in. And since God has an eternal perspective, he knows our past far better than we do, it's appropriate to confess the sins of those who came before, those who got you where you are today. And if that idea still makes you a little uncomfortable, well, then just read the rest of the passage and see what it says about God. Because we're going to talk about a God who is perfect and always faithful. And we look at how perfect God is, it's, we have little, less trouble confessing sins of people who are fallen and are far from God. When we see how great God is, we see how obviously sinful that we are. And so that's what they do. Their leaders, the Levites, they lead in a time of prayer, a public cry to God. They tell the people, we're going to praise, bless God for who he is 
because he should be exalted above all. They're trying to encourage the people, you need to see your place in God's big story. Not just what's going on in your life, but how you fit into what God is doing through all of time and history. And so, like we're going to do today, they're going to use this time to focus on God rather than themselves. And so they have a prayer, a long prayer that starts with praise for who God is. Following the outline, second point is praise for who God is. This is one of the longest prayers in Scripture, and it is very focused on this is who God is and what he has done. What's also interesting is sometimes when we talk about prayer, we like to use a little an acronym. It's not in the Bible, but it's helpful for us. ACTS, A-C-T-S, as a helpful way to think about what should happen in prayer. And we see those things in this prayer. The prayer starts with an adoration, a praise for who God is. It then moves into a time of confessing sin, but also thanking God for what he has done for us. And then it ends with a supplication, a request for God to act. It's a prayer very similar to some psalms in the Bible. If you want to read something like it, you could read Psalm 78 or Psalm 105 or 106. It's a focus on God has acted in this way. He has been faithful while we have been faithless. This prayer is really interesting because it's a summary of the whole Old Testament. It goes through all of Old Testament history, focusing on what God has done. As one scholar said, he said, putting the focus on God brought Israel's present circumstances into proper perspective. They could see, okay, this is what God has done before, and this is what God is doing in our lives now. This is how we can trust him moving forward. This passage highlights, I think, at least five particular aspects of who God is, what his character is like. And first, the prayer tells us that God is a creator, a creator. Look at verse 6. It says, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. God is the creator. He is the Lord over all. He is the sovereign ruler of all things. He's in control of it because he was the one who made everything. This idea of God's creation and his rule being tied together, it's reflected often in Scripture because God made all things. He's in charge of all things. In the book of 2 Kings, one king named Hezekiah prayed and said, O Lord God of Israel, you are enthroned above the cherubim, the angels. You are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, because you have made heaven and earth. Because you've made it, God, you are over all things. This God, this one true God who shows His faithfulness to us, He made the sky, the stars, everything we see when we look up at a clear night sky. And He also made everything that we see and experience here on earth. From a summer sunset to winter snow, from the smallest ant on your patio to the largest elephant in Africa, from a tiny plankton or bacteria in a pond to a a blue whale, all of it was created by God. Everything we see can be traced back to him. And also, this verse told us that everything that exists has been preserved by God. Everything that's alive, he keeps alive. He's given it life. 
And in this, God's work ties to the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. The book of Colossians tells us about Jesus. By Him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So God is a creator. But what does that mean for us? How does that impact our lives? Well, I think at least two. First, if God is a creator, that means He's in charge of everything, so I'm accountable to Him. If God is over anything, then I'm going to have to give an account for how I'd live the decisions that I made here on earth. That's why they're praying this prayer. They start with this. They start with, God, you created everything, and we're about to confess our sin because we are accountable to you. God being creator also tells us that everything in creation exists to testify to God's glory. This is who God is. We should praise and worship him. When you see something beautiful outside, you're looking to go, wow, that's incredible. God is behind that. As Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. What we see should lead us to praise God. So they praise him for a creator. And second, they also praise God because he is the one who chooses. He's the creator and he is the one who chooses. Look at verse 7. It says, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram, brought him out of the city he was in, Ur of the Chaldeans, and gave him the name Abraham. Abraham, God is the one who chooses. He chose Abraham, brought him and his descendants into the promised land. This is a story we find in the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Bible. So God not only created everything and rules over it, he's also in control of it and in control of our lives as well. It was his decision to make. He says in the book of Exodus, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now we can hear that. We can think, well, that sounds really unfair that God's doing it. But friends, if we have a relationship with God, we have the benefit from that because God has decided to show his love and grace to us. Like Abraham, he gives his people a new name And he gives us a new family. We're no longer on our own, but we become a part of God's people. The Apostle Paul writes about this and says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This choosing in love he predestined chose us for adoption to himself. He's adopted us as sons, as daughters, as children through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved, in Christ. Knowing that God has done this, that he has chosen, that he works in our lives, embracing that, God's people realize can give them peace. They can trust in God because he is working through them. They have the freedom now. We can live boldly for him. We can tell others about him. We can do what God says because it's not a relationship that we can mess up. It's one God has initiated on our behalf. We don't have to earn our position before him. God has done that. 
Pastor Chuck Swindle said, accepting his sovereignty, that God's in control, surrendering to his ways, those are probably the most difficult yet most productive choices that a person can make. Understanding that God's in control, surrendering that he is going to do what he's going to do. When we've done that, that frees us. We can then, I can live for God. I can make decisions to live for him because he is the one who is in control. So friends, let me ask you, who is the captain of your soul? You can pretend it's you, or you can know that God is the one who is in control. So they praise God for being a creator, the one who chooses, but God is also the righteous promise keeper. He's the righteous, the good covenant promise keeper. He talks about this in verse 8. They say, you found his, Abraham's heart, faithful before you. You made with him the covenant to give his offspring, the land of the Canaanite, Hittite, Amorite, Perizzite, Jebusite, Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. He is the righteous promise keeper. God made his people a covenant promise, a binding agreement that he was going to do something for them. He was going to give them a promised land. And in Nehemiah's day, they were still trusting in that promise. He had fulfilled it in part several times in their history. If you remember a year or so ago, two years now, we were looking at the book of Joshua, and we saw God bringing his people into the promised land. At the end of that book, Joshua said, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. I'm about to die. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things God promised concerning you. All have come to pass, not one of them has failed. Joshua experienced God keeps his promises. The people in Nehemiah's day, hundreds if not thousand years later, looked at that and said, yes, God has kept his promises. They knew that God would keep coming back to this covenant, this promise he made to his people. Psalm 106 says, for their sake he remembered his covenant. He relented of any judgment he was doing according to the abundance of his steadfast love. When God promises something, he does it. We don't have to doubt him, but instead we can trust him with whatever we face going forward. If God has acted in the past, we can trust that he'll be with us in the future because he is a righteous promise keeper. And God does this because he has and values his own glorious name. His own glorious name. That's the next thing they highlight. We actually sang a song earlier, a really good one, about your name. Your name is a strong and mighty tower. We, we sang that praise to God because he wants his name to be glorified and praised. Let's look at verses 9 through 15 to see this in our text. Verse 9 says, And you, God, you saw the affliction, the suffering of our fathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of the land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And here it is. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. Then he gives some more examples. You divided the sea before them so that they went through in the midst of the sea on dry land. 
You cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai, spoke with them from heaven, gave them right rules, true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath, commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. You told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Now, if you're a little familiar with the Bible, hopefully those events sound familiar. Hopefully you've heard them before. He's retelling the events in the book of Exodus. God saw that his people were suffering in slavery in Egypt, and God acted to bring them out of that, to save them from slavery. And God's people would often go back to that act. God reached out to us when we were in slavery and saved us. They used that for encouragement when they were facing a trial. They used it to remember, this is what God has done for us. Here, though they focus on not so much that God was saving them, but the reason that he did it. Remember verse 10 said, you made a name for yourself. God acted for his glory, his reputation, that people could see God is doing something. This is a God that we should know about. So people could know him, see what he has done. In many ways, that's what the book of Exodus is about. All the plagues that came, the freedom from slavery, crossing the sea that was divided, the pillar that guided the people during the day and during the night, even the gift of God's law, his word, the provision of food and water that he gave his people. All of that was from him. And it was for the purpose of people knowing his name and knowing what this God has done. You may say, I don't know if I've heard that, but God says that's why he's doing it, even in the book of Exodus. In chapter 9, Moses speaks for God, talking to Pharaoh, the Pharaoh who's keeping them in slavery. And God says to Pharaoh, but for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God acts in this way so that he is never forgotten. Psalm 106 says he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. We read earlier in verse 5, blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. God does things so people know and praise his name. Now let's be honest. If we were talking about a person, we would think that's a really that's a really selfish thing to do, that you do all these things, people know you and people praise you and talk about how you great you are. And if we were talking about a regular person, like a man or a woman, you're, you'd be right. That is a selfish thing. That's really an arrogant thing to say about yourself, to do things just so people tell you how wonderful you are. The difference is we're not talking about another person. We're talking about God. And God is someone who is perfect and complete. He's the perfection of everything that we see. And since he's perfect, complete, entirely good, then he can, he should say this. If something is perfect or wonderful, then we talk about how great it is. If we just had, I don't know, a perfect piece of cake, we'll tell people, oh man, this piece of cake was really good. You should have some of that. God is perfect. And so he 
can. He has the right to do things so that people will tell him, tell others about how perfect and amazing he is. He acts for his glorious name. But the last attribute that's here is the one I want to spend a few more minutes on, and this is God shows great mercies. Great mercies. So not only is he a creator who, who chooses, who keeps his promises, who has a glorious name, but he shows great mercy to his people. Let's start with verses 16 through 21 here. They say, but they and our fathers, God's people, they acted presumptuously. They stiffened their neck. They did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. Verse 18 says, even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, and they had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them You did not withhold your food, your manna from their mouth. You gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. And their feet did not swell. God's people look back and say, yes, God is all these great things, but our ancestors, they acted with pride, presumption, arrogance. They stubbornly refused to follow God. We don't use that phrase so much, stiff neck, but it just means being stubborn, not doing what someone has said. And they did not obey God's commandments. It also says here that they were arrogant. And that's the exact same word that was used to talk about Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They acted like the Egyptians. As Psalm 78 says, they forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. They forgot what God had done for them. They tried to rebel in the wilderness, but... God forgave them. That second half of verse 17 is kind of the main point. But you are a God, forgiving, ready to forgive. You are gracious and merciful or compassionate, slow to anger and abounding, overflowing in love and kindness. He is a God who did not forsake, who did not abandon his people, and he will not abandon He stands ready to pardon them with unfailing love. He shows mercy on them and does not give them what they deserve. And instead, he makes a new covenant with them. He promised his presence would remain with them. And these words should look familiar. In the passage we're reading, they're pulling this from Exodus 34, where the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed that he was the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Old Testament authors would return to this again and again. Because of his great mercy and compassion, God does not forsake his people. 
He did not forsake them in the wilderness. Instead, He preserved them. He helped them to move forward. He gave them what they needed to live, even as He does the same for us, providing us clothing, food, water, shelter. The next section talks about events in the book of Joshua. Look at verses 22 through 25. It then says, Then you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. They took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. You brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in, they possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. You gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. They captured fortified cities, rich land. They took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. They ate and were filled, became fat, delighted themselves in your great goodness. This is the conquest of the promised land, God's blessings on his people. But let's look at what happens in the very next verse, verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet, when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. There's that word again, God's mercy. This is the events of the book of Judges. We go back to that. The people would cast God's law behind their backs, ignore it, not only ignore, disobey, but completely reject what God was saying and doing. Psalm 78 again says, In spite of this, they sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. They rejected what God was doing. And throughout the Old Testament, we see this constant cycle. The people continue to sin and they fall into judgment. And then they call out to God and God saves them. And then they fall into sin again and fall into judgment and call out to God again and need deliverance. One Bible scholar, Mervyn Brennerman, said, despite our sin, God is gracious. But despite God's grace, we continue to sin. Despite our continuing sin, God continues to be gracious. It's a vicious cycle we can fall into of rejecting who God is and pursuing our own interests. But He continues to show abundant mercy and compassion. That's who he is. He continues to love us even when we are unlovable. We've quoted this a lot, but one more time. Psalm 106 says, Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious and in their purposes were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. Or to use some New Testament words, a really great phrase, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
This is God showing His love and goodness. He did it for His people then. He does it for His people now. When we sin, He continues to show love. The last couple of verses of the section, 29 through 31. They say, And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously. They did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules. With which a person does them, he shall live by them. But they turned a stubborn shoulder. They stiffened their neck. They would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. And therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and a merciful God. Here we see the books of First, Second Kings, what led up to where God's people are now. They continued to reject what God says. He called them to follow his law, but they ignored his prophets. And instead, they were sent into exile. They had to leave the promised land. But 31 tells us that despite their constant failures, God preserved his people. He continued to show them mercy. As one of the prophets said, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. He did this because he is a graceful, a gracious, a merciful God. This is the point. Despite Israel's sin, God persisted in his love, his patience, his compassionate mercy. We can see it in Psalm 78, but we especially see it in the verse we read. If you want to skip ahead to 2 Timothy 2.13. We read this earlier before the prayer. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. God knows who we are. He knows that we are faithless. We can't live for him, but he continues to show faithful love toward us. Those are powerful, really holy words that don't make sense to us. God shows love to me even when I don't love him. In God's providence, I guess, I came across a, a quote from a pastor, counselor named Paul David Tripp. He was talking about that verse, 2 Timothy And he said, think about this, the one who created and controls the world, the one who is the ultimate definition of what is loving, true, and good, the one who alone has the power to finally defeat sin, this one has chosen because of his grace to wrap his arms of faithful love and protection around you, and he will not let you go. That's what God does for those who know him. Now, uh, Paul Tripp goes on. He says, this doesn't mean that it doesn't matter how you live, but that your security is not found in your faithfulness, but in his. So then rather than giving you a license to do whatever, this truth should give you motivation to continue. That's that freedom I was talking about earlier. If God shows that love to us, he keeps us safe, then we are free then to live for him. I don't have to worry every day Oh no, I do something to mess up my relationship with God. No, I can know even if I do mess it up, God will continue to show love and faithfulness to me. I don't know every detail about every single person in this room, but I know that all of us at one point or another have experienced some type of failure. I I don't know what it is, if it was at work or a relationship. We've experienced failure. So that's true. 
but I also know that God is faithful. And so as one pastor, James Hamilton, said, don't be discouraged by the history of disobedience in your life. Instead, use it to highlight the great mercies of God. That's what it's for. It's for you to know how merciful the Lord is. It's for you to celebrate the greatness of this good God. He's saying, have a different view of your life story. Not as a tale of woe, but as a tale of this happened and God is still doing this. It's like I was saying in the beginning, this passage we're reading, we could look at it as, well, God's people are a bunch of failures. They fail all the time. They're not listening to God. That, that's, that's true. That's one way to look at it. Or we can look at it as even though they were faithless, God remained faithful to his people. We should do the same with our lives. Yes, all these things that happen. I have made very dumb decisions here, 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 and here. But if I know God, then he has remained faithful to me through this. He saves because of his great mercy. For the interest of time, I'm going to move a little quicker through the message. In uh, the next section, the people give a plea for more mercy. Having praised God for who he is, they ask for more mercy. I'm just going to read verses 32 and 33. They say, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the king of Assyria till this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully. We have acted wickedly. They're just acknowledging this truth again, that God has been faithful to them. And what's interesting here is, this is the end of the prayer. This is the moment where they can finally ask God for something. And the only thing they ask God for is, God, please know that we have suffered. That, that's it. What a humble request. Instead of spending time asking God, help us with this, God, do these things for us, they say, God, just look and see where we are. We trust you to be faithful to us. They knew they had only gotten what they deserved. And even though they weren't fully free as the people of God, they trusted him to be faithful. And then having prayed, they finally act. The very last verse, verse 38, shows their response and our response to what God has done, which is to make a covenant, a commitment to God. To make a covenant or commitment. In verse 38, they say, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priest. This is their commitment that they're going to do because of everything God has done. And we'll actually talk about it a bit more the next time we're in Nehemiah. That's what all of chapter 10 is, is their commitment. They're saying, God, you've been faithful to us. This is how we're going to respond. And I'm really excited to take some time to unpack what that looked like for them and what that can look like for us here at East Shore Baptist Church. But for today, I just want to reiterate that, that wonderful passage from 2 Timothy, that when we are faithless, God remains faithful. And again, remind us, this is not something that we have earned. As Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's kind of the New Testament verse of the summary of this chapter here. While we sin and continue to reject God, he sent his son to die for us. 
So again, I don't know the specific failures in your life, but I do know this. However you've failed or however you've ignored what God has said, there is still hope for you if you are alive, if you are breathing. And that hope is that Christ has come, Christ has died, and Christ has been risen again. If you will turn from your sin, if you will reject that, say, I'm putting that behind me and I'm trusting in God, then you can know eternal life through Jesus Christ. If you turn or repent of that and put your faith and trust in Jesus, then you can know him, be a part of his people, have confidence in life that I can live and I don't have to live in fear of God striking me down at any moment because I know that he knows me and that he is faithful to me. So let me ask you, do you know this God? Because his mercy is great and his name is glorious and he is worthy of praise.